Welcome everybody to Crystal Kylan, friends. Today we're going to be talking to a man by the name of David Dayan. And, um, One of the greats. I like him. He, uh, I don't know how many in our audience are familiar with him because, uh, you know, some people are more just, I want to watch the stuff I mm. consume about news. Others are more, let me read about it. But uh, he has this outlet called The American Prospect, and they do a phenomenal job. So I'm really happy to have him on. He's been a guy who I've followed for a long time. Just to let everybody know, um, you know, the thing I know him most for, and you could chime in with what you know him most for, but he's the guy who set up the Biden executive order tracker at the beginning of his presidency. Yeah. I was like, here are the things he can do. Here are the things that, you know, at least to this point that he has and hasn't done. And he tracks it and it's very vital and crucial information. And he's as big of a policy wonk as you can get. I think that type of work is so incredibly essential because it's one thing for us to sit here and say, like, they should do more. But he's saying, here are concrete things they could be doing and are choosing not to and goes way beyond, you know, the obvious things like descheduling marijuana and student loan debt relief, like a whole mass of executive orders they could be doing and are not. And they can really, the whole outlet can be counted on to dive into the details of policy policy um, in a way that is profoundly helpful and uh, important for having a functioning democracy. You know what I learned from him? Hmm. I learned from, there's a bunch of things I learned from him, but one of the things I learned from him is that the president basically already has the authority to give everybody health care. Right. He's the one who, who found right. the, uh, the legal backing for that idea. Now, I forget, and I'll ask him this question because I'm, I'm curious what the answer is, because I feel like there was one time I read, it's a provision of Obamacare. That's right. No, no, no. But then there was another time I read, it's actually a provision of the Social Security Act hmm. that allows you to, to say, in times of emergency, expand Medicare, Medicaid to everybody. Well, I and know there's an Obamacare connection because there's a town. The Montana town. Yeah. In Mon- Libby? Libby, Montana? Yeah. Do, do I have that right? Where everybody was given Medicare right. because of, like, they were all poisoned by right. industrial yeah. Yeah. runoff or something like that. And so that was a key ask for that senator at the time in order to sign on to Obamacare. They were like, we need this thing for Libby. That guy was against Medicare for all for everybody, too, though. Right. Such a douchebag move. Classic. For my town, yes. But for your town, fuck off. Yeah, exactly. Classic. Um, Another thing I learned from him. Well, we don't need to get into all this. But one more thing I learned (laughs) from him is um, the president has the authority already on his own to lower prescription drug prices. So all this talk and debate and like, should we put it in the bill? Should we not put it in the bill? That's nonsense. Biden Hmm. has the authority to already do that. And it was David Dane who taught me that. Great. So, well, he, we really actually lucked out to get him, and then we'll transition into some of the things we wanted to talk about because he also is someone who is really diving into the details of this new big surprise deal that came out of nowhere between Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer um, that has significant uh, corporate tax increases, that also has some significant climate investment. And just to give you guys a little bit of the backstory here, I mean, we all thought that anything approaching Build Back Better was dead. That's still true. That's still true. Yes, but the yeah. great, the big thing they were debating was like, maybe we'll do some ACA subsidies. Maybe we'll do this prescription drug pricing reform that we've literally been running on for over a decade. Mm-hmm. That was the most that they were hoping for. And then out of nowhere, I mean, this really came as a shock to um, political observers, every journalist, uh, and reportedly to the White House themselves who were not involved in negotiating this deal. Biden's so useless. <laughs> it's totally, I mean, it, it He's is, over there. 
Yeah, it is a real statement like, on Joe. I'll give you whatever you want. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, it is a statement on like how inconsequential and irrelevant Biden is. That yeah. they felt mm-hmm. like we can, we're just gonna exempt you. Are gonna be just as surprised as anybody else. So, and he immediately signed onto it too. Sorry to interrupt yeah, you. But yeah, he was before like, he's like, he's like, like sure, oh, yeah, no, yeah. I'm, I'm with this. Yeah, That's totally, great. totally. I was he's totally involved so in this. Silly, so <laughs> useless. <laughs> so anyway, um, you know, long thought that this was all completely dead, and lo and behold, they have some kind of a deal. So let me tell you what uh, the details are here. Uh, And part of what is making people a little more hopeful, although there are still some obstacles that we'll get into that this might actually happen, is that this came directly from Joe Manchin. So it wasn't like Schumer saying, here's our here's what we want and we're going to take it to Joe and maybe he'll like it and whatever. This actually came directly from him. Okay, so uh, according to Jeff Stein, I'm reading his tweet now. Tax policies in this deal, it's 15% corporate minimum tax. So, and that applies to, I think, corporations who make over a billion dollars. So for large corporations, you're not going to pay less than 15% minimum tax. This is an idea that came from Elizabeth Warren. Do they say how much revenue it raises or no? Two, 313 billion. Okay, so that's real. Significant. That's, okay, yeah. that's like no, no more than 0%, pennies. no more of this, uh, you know, negative tax rate where you get a subsidy or 0%, like GE paid 0% yes. a number of years. Yes. Honeywell, same thing. We're not going to let you just exploit and abuse the tax code so that you pay absolutely nothing. We're going to have at least this 15% corporate minimum tax. As with all the, these things, devil's in the details, making sure that actually works out. But that's the idea, and they say it would raise $313 billion. Prescription drug reform, which we've been talking about, um, something Democrats have been running on for a decade and somehow seem to never get done. Um, where they the details be able to, that I'm worried about. Why is that? Because I I feel like they're going to find a way to... Remember when they Water were... Water it down, yeah. Yeah, when they were negotiating this originally mm-hmm. and they went from like, we're going to uh, negotiate for lower prescription drug prices and then it became like, we'll do like seven drugs and we'll do it by like <laughs> 2027. Yeah, they did do yeah, that. So the drug I'm, makers were like, you can negotiate on these ones, but right. not the ones that we actually care so, about. So uh, when we get specifics, I'm very curious. I feel like there will be many devils in those details. You Indeed. Know what I'm saying? They say that one will raise $288 billion. Um, increased IRS tax enforcement to raise $124 billion. That one also, it matters the details. I mean, what's really disgusting with IRS tax enforcement currently is that they go aggressively after, like, the poorest Americans. And then if you're rich and you're a tax cheat, you are very unlikely to be audited. You're much more likely to be audited if you're, like, a poor working class person now, than they, if you're a rich person. Do they stipulate that it, it needs to be used against the top 1% or anything like Don't that? Don't know yet. See, again, now I'm getting worried because everybody, you know, I saw a lot of people on Twitter celebrating this deal and I, you know, perused over what we know so far. And I was like, yeah, on paper, it sounds good. But every single time, once we get like get down to the nitty gritty of it. It's like four lobbyists who work for GlaxoSmithKline. Well, let me, like, let me also say, this is why it's great to have Dan on today. Right, because yeah, true. he yeah. is, um, a- as much as we know that exists about this deal, he knows about it. Mm-hmm. So um, we'll, he may have some of these answers. We'll, we'll ask him about it. Um, they also want to, close the carried interest loophole, another thing that gets talked about every year. They say that'll only raise $14 billion. We'll see. But this is just carried interest loophole. It's just a giant giveaway to private equity ghouls. That's all that is. Right. Okay. Um, That one could be an issue for Kirsten Sinema, who has previously said she's opposed to that. It could also be an issue for people like Josh Gottheimer in the House, who's like the worst possible Democrat, who's like wants the salt tax cap thing. I'm going to come back to my theory on that in a minute. Okay. Um, So anyway, that one might be a sticking point. On the spending side, um, it's uh, $369 billion towards energy and climate change. It's what Manchin describes as an all-of-the-above approach. So you're talking about um, 
solar, wind, you're also talking about nuclear, um, which I support that being in there as well. And you've got the ACA extension, $64 billion. One of Manchin's stipulations is that you needed to do some significant deficit reduction with this as well. ACA is Obamacare, guys. So it's an Obamacare funding extension. Right. Um, Not just funding extension, but... uh, you know, they increase some of the subsidies for Obamacare to make it more affordable to more people. And that was in that first bill that passed in the Biden administration, the COVID relief bill. What do they call mm-hmm. it? Is that the CARES Act? Well, I don't remember what that one was called. CARES Act? No, I think the was? CARES Act. Was the CARES Act under Trump? Is I don't know. Anyway, don't the first one that Biden passed, that was in there. And the set, there were two Biden passed. That's right? set to expire in like literally October. So you're going to have a bunch of people who right before the election were going to get notices that their healthcare premiums were jumping up significantly. Mm -hmm. So even the idiot Democrats realized this is a big political problem for them and made it a priority to get that through. So those are the broad strokes of the deal. Um, There's a few other things just like uh, the political context, which is interesting here, which is... This is great, actually. I love this. Yeah. So Democrats wanted to get this uh, CHIPS Act through, which uh, helps to subsidize the microchips industry. So that's building factories here for the microchip industry. Yes. Which we had previously outsourced all of it because we're a bunch of fucking idiots. And Yeah. So it's all basically in Taiwan right now. Right. And so, you know... Oh, the, yeah. That's safe. Great. Super great. <laughs> and so... The place that's under China's boot. <laughs> there was this big effort. Okay. We want to get this CHIPS Act thing done, you know, industrial policy and uh, Republicans, some of them were willing to join with Democrats, but McConnell had threatened the CHIPS Act and said, if you're going to do any, what he describes as partisan reconciliation bill, the CHIPS Act is off the table. By the way, let's, can we reflect on that for a second? Yeah, that's Think disgusting. Think about how dark that is. Yeah, that like- I'm against American manufacturing if, if I don't get my political way. Right. So then Whether you're just against or, American manufacturing. Exactly. If either the law is good and you support right. it mm-hmm. or you don't. And they did something even so. Okay, so Chips Act passes through the Senate and then literally hours later, the details of this bill come out. And so if this had come out and leaked before the chips thing passes and the whole thing gets blown up, but they held their tongues long enough to get this through. So in other words, Chuck Schumer pulled a Mitch McConnell. Because that's some shit that Mitch McConnell would do. That's some Shocking. shit that Harry Reid would have done back Shocking in the day. Shocking actual is, competence and strategy. This is Chuck Schumer saying, yeah, 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 reconciliation's dead. We'll do the CHIPS Act. It's totally cool. Let's do that. And then after, right after they do that, aha, bitch, we got a reconciliation bill. Literally hours later. So, But now, now let's get to the um, most important part, which is what's going to happen from here. But first of all, let's stipulate, like we said before, the devil's in the details. And there may be too many devils in, in you know, the end summation where it's not worth it. And by the way, we'll have a conversation later with Dane on the CHIPS Act where I think it's a very nuanced and complex conversation. Yeah. The idea There's some of problems with the bill. Bringing back, you know, American manufacturing for microchips, I'm all on board for. And in fact, I celebrated when we heard all oh, these new factories are going to be built in Michigan and Ohio and all these different places. But again, the devil's in those details as well. And Bernie Sanders is against the bill and Bernie Sanders is a pretty intelligent guy. And so you have to wonder, well, how bad is it? But anyway, I digress from that point. What's going to happen with this reconciliation deal? So here's my theory, and I'd like to know your thoughts as well. Um, People seem to already be accepting that it's like a foregone conclusion that it will get through the Senate. That's the the tone of the conversation that I've seen on this in the political world. Mm. Um, I'm not as confident as those people that it's a guarantee it's going to get through the Senate. I basically think you flip a coin because if, if this is Manchin's deal and he's the one who's parroting it, well, then the only one you got to worry about really is Kirsten Sinema. Yeah. Um, and, but 
there is reason to worry about Kirsten Cinema. But beyond that, so let's let's say for a second it does end up getting through the Senate, which again, I, I'm 50-50 on that. I'm agnostic. We'll see what happens. I, I don't know what's going to happen, but let's say it does get through the Senate. Well, then it goes to the House. What's going to happen in the House? Um, Josh Gottheimer is one of the most corrupt Democrats. He's terrible. Josh Gottheimer <laughs> represents nothing but big pharma and Wall Street and the wealthy and hedge funds. And um, at like Alex Salmon here said on Twitter, he's a great uh, writer for the, the American Prospect as well. He says, Josh Gottheimer is going to be a bigger liability to this bill's passage than Kirsten Cinema. He only needs to pull three of what's called the unbreakable nine um, to kill this. A lot of game left to be played. So what he's talking about there is, um, it's not the Blue Dog Caucus. What's their name again? They have a different name that's like a... Aren't they the New Democrat Caucus New Democrat or something caucus, like that? Something yeah. like that. Anyway, it's, you know, it's these corporate ghouls. Um, there's nine of them that are likely no's on the bill, and he only needs to grab three of them. So even if, in theory, if you get Mansion and you get Cinema, it's like, okay... So the most corrupt assholes in the senator for it. But what about the most corrupt assholes in the House? Mm -hmm. And so I think it is more likely than not right now that either the bill dies or it gets watered down to the point of being something you should vote against anyway, where they might tweak the provisions in the House and make them worse and worse and worse. And then at the end of the day, you're left with a steaming pile of dog shit. Yeah. And everybody pretends, oh, it's the best we can get. But the best you can get is actually going backwards. So Gottheimer, for those who, I mean, I'm sure you guys remember this, but he was the leader of the quote-unquote SALT caucus. That They were like, no SALT, no deal, meaning right. they so were— we need tax cuts for we rich need people this in blue states. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, he represents, I mean, in fairness to him, his constituency is like people Those who will people benefit from state. this and Correct. benefit from yeah. the carried mm -hmm. interest loophole and whatever. So I guess you could say he's representing his constituents. Interesting. <laughs> um, <laughs> Manchin, in his statement on all of this, he says, he calls out, the SALT uh, tax explicitly. And he says our tax code should not favor red state or blue state elites with loopholes. Oh, up, Jill, man. You are an elite. Like, I know. I am so full yeah, of shit. Jesus but Christ. anyway, he says it should not favor them with loopholes like SALT and should focus more on closing unfair loopholes like carried interest. So uh, it almost seems like he's kind of laying a, down a red line of he, you know, will does not want the salt tax thing that Gottheimer wants. Um, so it could set up a direct conflict now, there. You want to know why that is? Because the salt tax applies in blue states. Right. It's not so, good for West Virginians. His people don't benefit from it. Right. Correct. Exactly. So he's fine with raising yeah, but, taxes I mean, on. He's right about it. He's right. But he's a total fucking fraud because this is a guy who took money from 25 Republican billionaires in every corporation under yeah, the sun. Obviously. And there's a million taxes on corporations and the wealthy that he draws a line at. And he's like, no, 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 don't raise their taxes. There's another catch with all of this, which is um, he mansion in exchange for doing this deal is demanding more uh green lighting of a fuel of fossil fuel projects you'll see this referred to as permitting reform yeah but biden's already green lighting everything anyway right but yeah. so that's the other piece is um the idea is after reconciliation that he'll get his fossil fuel project quote unquote permitting reform um now again we're still learning details about the climate piece of this the Early analysis that I've seen is that the spending is sufficient, that it more than offsets what you would end up with so that on balance, it is still a good deal, even if they push forward these new fossil fuel projects. So I mean, that's where we are. Since we don't know the details, I find it weird when people say stuff like that. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. we have to know the details first.
It's like Something you can't that... just take their PR releases as like this. This is fact. Yeah. Like no, what's actually in the bill? But anyway, that I think we we gave a fair summation and a mm-hmm. fair breakdown there. And, yeah. You know, we'll see what happens moving forward, and obviously we'll continue to cover it. And I don't underestimate Kirsten Cinema as a continued fly in the ointment because she has been very opposed to like any new taxes, not just on individuals but corporations as well. She's opposed to closing the carried interest loophole, so she could still be an issue here too. Of course. And they haven't commented as of us recording this. Okay. Um, so now, uh, I wanted to show you guys a little clip that popped up on my feed the other day. So Sean Hannity is still talking over on, uh, radio, like it's 1998. Um, and even, but even his like Fox news show, it's so stuck in 1998. It really does feel very dated. It's so, it's so just standard partisan claptrap. Like there's nothing interesting ever that comes out of there. You could predict everything he says before he says it. He's never made an interesting point in his entire life. Never. It's just all pure Republican hackery. My favorite Sean Hannity moment, or I should say moments, is when Media Matters clipped together. It was a compilation of through the years, his position on the NSA spying, the mm. Patriot Act. During the Bush years, he framed it as like, if you're against this, you're with the terrorists. Mm-hmm. This is about safety. This is about security. This is about making sure your grandma doesn't get blown up by Al-Qaeda, you asshole. You have to support this. And then as soon as Obama got in there, he did this long monologue about how this is against our Fourth Amendment protection from unreasonable search and seizure against Classic. Totally flipped, and there was no acknowledgement of, like, my, this used to be my position, now this is my position. It's just doing standard partisan hackery. But anyway, one other area where he's been consistently wrong is taxes and... Um, the economy and the wealthy. So everything in that field, he's been horrific on. But now I think he may have gone lower than even Sean Hannity has ever gone before on these issues. Check this out. What is the real quick one sentence each? What do you recommend people do now? I'm saying save money wherever you can. And if you can bring in extra money, find a way. What do you say, Steve? I say continue to work hard. If you don't have a job, better get one while they're out there. And I don't think I'd sell the stock market right now because the the prices have fallen already so much. David? Wake up every day and be as productive as you can be because that's what God made you to be. Be productive and it solves a lot of financial problems too. It does. Maybe maybe instead of working a 40-hour week, join the rest of us. Work 70, 80, 90 hours. Um, and I know that people don't like to hear that advice, but that's what I do. Um, anyway, thank you both. David Bonson, Steve Moore. I've done that my whole life. Just keep working, working, working. Anyway, when I was a contractor, I remember I, I would work through the night if I could. You know, if people would let me stay or if I was working in a commercial facility, I'd stay as long as they let me. First of all, let's just say... This guy hasn't done real work in fucking decades. He acts like he works Since, in a fucking coal mine. You're and look, a well-paid TV host, like pampered TV host. And we are, we're in a position to make this point too, because what we do is very similar to what he does. Yes. He has multiple shows. We have multiple shows. Yes. Right? Like, we just do it in new media. He does it in old media. Yes. Granted, he gets paid out the wazoo for what he does, Oh, right? and has a million more staffers than we do. Of course, They're yeah. writing his, his shit for him. Absolutely. So, let's just put that out there. For anybody who listens to that and says, come on, man, he does. you don't even do real work Sean, I'm here to tell you you're correct. And also the thing is, yeah. we love what we do. So it's only it's only like semi-work. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's in the same boat. He loves what he does. He loves, you know, seeing his puckering his lips camera. up and putting them on Trump's asshole yeah. every other day. <laughs> like that's what he does, right? So, but did you notice the number of hours he gave there? Yeah. What do you say? 70, 80, 90. You and I did the math before the show. 90 hours a week is like 12 or 13 hours a day, seven days a week. 
That's insane. You you will work yourself into an early grave if you do that. Yeah. I don't even think that's debatable. I think you will run yourself ragged and just be done. Well, and I mean, this has always been the fundamental hypocrisy, too, of this whole, like, this view, which has been standard issue Republican Party crap for decades and decades now, which is you're also supposed to be the party that cares about, like, families <laughs> and raising your kids. And, okay. Trying, when you're point. working seven days a week, 12 or 13 fucking hours a day, who's who's raising your kids then? It's certainly not you. That is such a great point. And it's true because they do all the time. They yelp about family values. But the fact of the matter is, if you truly are pro-family, some no-brainer positions are like paid vacation time by law like every other developed country has, mm -hmm. paid maternity leave, paid paternity leave, you know, something like a four-day work week. We should be having a serious conversation about it this time. It just seems like, I mean, that whole discussion, it feels to me like such an anachronism, too. I just, I don't know. Do you Good think word. It, do you think it, do you think it lands? Like, do you think that people Fuck no. no. I mean, and I just I really feel like especially post pandemic when people were screwed over and it was so clear it was not their fault. Like they didn't have anything right. to do with the worldwide spread in, of a pandemic um, that there was just a real shift in attitudes with regards to work and workers. So that I mean, now you see these labor movements across the country, which are broadly supported in a nonpartisan like bipartisan across the spectrum kind of a way. You see now with inflation, like that's not the fault of an ordinary worker. So right. this isn't, these aren't things you can bootstrap your way out of. That's right. Yeah. And the other point that I can't get out of my mind, and it's something I think about often is, so the minimum wage is still $7 and 25 cents an hour. Yeah. Last time it was raised was all the way back in 2009. And it was actually raised under Bush, if I remember correctly. So it's worth now, I, there was some tweet the other day, I forget who said it, but it's more than 20% less than it was at the time. So the real wages for somebody who makes minimum wage, it's yeah. going down, 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 down. Yeah. You can't afford like a one bedroom apartment in any of the states in the country on minimum wage. So what drives me crazy is this notion of like, you can't yell at somebody to work harder. If they're working a full-time job and they're just not getting by, the fact of the matter is, if you work a full-time job, that should be enough to get by. Now, you can have a, you know, you could argue about, well, what's the definition of get by? What are mm -hmm. the lines, et cetera? But I think we can all agree, we're certainly not at that point right now where right. your work is valued enough if you, you know, put in the time. And there's a guy I knew in high school, one of the hardest working guys I ever met. His name's Kevin. And he worked like two or three jobs all the time. Every time I saw him, he was working. And the guy lived like at the poverty line or just below the poverty line. And he had some shitty apartment where he was renting. And it was, you know, as cheap as he could get. And I, I think of that guy all the time because we've been lied about this notion of meritocracy. Mm -hmm. Like the harder you work, the further you go. But in my experience, some of the people who work the hardest are lagging behind the most. Yeah. So I don't really see a, a, a correlation there. You're, the point I like to get across people is that your market value is not the same as your human value. That's and what politics, exactly right. what we should attempt to do politically is like sort of even those things out a bit where, you know, everybody in a country as developed as we are, as modern as we are, as industrial as we are, we can definitely make it a little bit more fair to actually get to the point where it would be maybe a reasonable meritocracy where like the floor is an acceptable place where you start from. Yes. You know, it's like if you have a hundred yard dash, you take some kid in Harlem and Mitt Romney's kids, the kid in Harlem starting at the negative 50 yard line and Mitt Romney's kids at the 89 yard line for a hundred yard dash. I mean, it's, it's not, there's no justice to it. There's no fairness to it. I'm not going full, you know, viva la revolution communism here. But all I'm saying is if you look at the, 
tremendous income and wealth inequality, and your takeaway from that is like, work harder, work fucking 90 hours a week or something. You're just a fucking dumbass. That is a dumb point to make. There is absolutely no reason why every person in this country couldn't have housing, food, healthcare, education. I mean, that's that's just a choice, right? Okay, that we Che just, Guevara. That we decide not to not to provide Got that. Which, over here, you know which saying? many other developed nations have decided that their citizens are, as human beings, worthy of. Um, Hannity and all of his Stephen Moore, I think, was one of the people there. All of the ghouls that are Stephen trading Moore, their I forgot about that. Again. Yeah, that are trading their like ideas of what they would tell people. Um, all of their ideas are just focused on the individual. And that whole way of thinking about politics and the economy and how to approach your life, that's all designed to make you feel like if you are struggling, it's your fault. Correct. Yeah, right? that's a great point. That's the and, and that's actually a big, in America, obstacle to change because mm-hmm. a lot of people really imbibe this and they feel a great sense of shame if they're not able to make it, if they're not able to join the middle class. And so rather than thinking of, okay, what are the collective solutions? What, are we, what should we be demanding from our government for the common good? They b- buy into this like, oh, I'm just, I just got to work harder and it's just, it's all on me. I think much better advice came from uh, Amazon labor union leader, Christian Smalls, who said, listen, we're not leaving our jobs anymore. We're organizing. In other words, we're not just in it up that these jobs are crappy and this is our hours and this is the pay and it is what it is. No, Rather than try to bootstrap our way individually out of this, we're going to join collectively, use our power to organize and achieve a better deal for all of us. And ultimately, that's the only answer because no individual person can, you know, the the odds that are being thrown, people are slipping into a recession, the prices that are going up and up and up. Even before we talked about, we really, you know, started talking about inflation Healthcare, education, and housing have been skyrocketing for decades. Somehow that wasn't considered inflation, even though, I mean, these are the core items that allow people to be able to live and have any sort of a bedrock, basic, decent life. You made a really great point there that I want to underscore for people. They try to frame it so that if you're not doing well, it is a personal moral failing. But the obvious retort to that is like, well, what if you are doing everything right and you're still not making it? Mm-hmm. And the fact of the matter is, I just pulled this number up. This is from 2018 Bureau of Labor Statistics. About 38.1 million people, or 11.8% of the U.S. population, lived below the official poverty level in 2018. I googled uh, how many working poor in America. That's the number that came up. I don't know if that's actually working poor or just under the official poverty line. Uh, here, I got 34 million. It's from 2019. 34 million for working poor, or 10.5% of the population. Okay. Um, working poor. Okay. So let's just say it's about that. And by the way, I don't even think that number's right. I think that because the official poverty line is, I think, lower than what it should be. I think right. it's kind of un- not reasonable as to where they draw the line. Yeah. But like, what do you say to those people? What do you say to those people? It's personal moral failing. That, sh- that doesn't it's hold not, water. It just doesn't not, make any sense. Not so. to mention all the assholes who have done everything wrong and are horrible human beings and are succeeding in spite of it. <laughs> There's that other point. end of the spectrum yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah, that's another great point. So anyway, it's very obviously not a meritocracy. That doesn't mean that discipline and hard work are bad. It just means let's be honest about what happens in this country and to just yell at people <laughs> work 90 hours a week. The, pro- the problem mm. in this country is not that people are lazy. That's just not that's not the issue. The issue is that we have made it, we have a a rigged economy that benefits a very few people and makes it almost impossible for the vast majority of Americans to get ahead. Hear, hear. 
All right, let's get to our wonderful guest, the executive editor, David Dayan of uh, American Prospect, doing incredible work and perfect person to have on today to break down this new deal. Let's get right to it. David, it's great to see you. It's great to be here. So I was saying that um, we got super lucky having you this week because you're covering in depth um, everything that's unfolding with this super surprise deal. Uh, Also, you've been digging into the CHIPS Act. And the reason we originally booked you, which I still definitely want to get into, is that you all are um, coming out with an issue that has a bunch of big new ideas that progressives should be thinking about and organizing towards for the sort of medium to long term, which I, I think is really important to get to as well. But let's start first with this Manchin-Schumer deal. Before we get into the details, um, just talk about what a surprise this is and what you think the impetus for this deal was right now. So, yeah, I mean, two weeks ago, uh, Joe Manchin uh, basically walked away from the table, uh, at least according to the leaks that came from you know, the rest of the Senate uh, Democratic Caucus. And uh, it looked like it was over. We were going to get uh, uh, these two health care pieces, extension of the Affordable Care Act subsidies and uh, some pretty modest prescription drug price reform. And that would be it. And, you know, people were writing the postmortems. I was writing the postmortems. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden, uh, really out of nowhere, uh, in you know, Washington is not a place for secrets. I mean, you, you don't usually get a situation where you have a surprise uh, announcement like this. And yet, uh, yes, that, that's what ended up happening, where they brought climate and energy and, and, and tax measures back into the picture. Um, as far as why that happened, I mean, you know, I guess there are a lot of theories. My, my take is that when Manchin walked away, uh, it, it was very clear at that point that he was responsible. Uh, that, that's the way at least it was framed. Uh, uh, whether, you know, I mean, we'll never know the, the full truth, but the, it certainly was put that way. Uh, there were op-eds in the New York Times saying this is what Joe Manchin cost us as far as the planet is concerned. Mm. Uh, there were, uh, you know, the news stories were definitely on the side of Joe Manchin ruined this deal. And I think that, uh, Manchin does not want to be seen that way. He doesn't want to be seen as the, the ultimate impediment. And, uh, I, I think it was a combination you know, he was been he's been beaten on by activists for you know going on two years now. But it was it was the fact that everyone was coalescing around this idea that he was the bad guy. Uh he, he doesn't want to hear it from the New York Times op-ed page. He doesn't mm. want to hear it from 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 those kinds of sources. And uh so it obviously uh spurred him to get back into the into the bargaining room. So uh it turns out negative pressure works. Call me, you know, color me shocked. Over well, it here. was it was when it came from the elites. He didn't want to have trouble in the yeah, uh, but, in his elite circles. But in the final summation, it's like what the left was saying all along turned out to actually be true. Um, so in the deal, we have uh, prescription drug reform, 15 percent uh, corporate minimum tax, 
IRS enforcement, closed carry interest loophole, $370 billion uh, for energy and climate, $300 billion for deficit reduction, three years for uh, an Obamacare subsidy extension. Let me ask you, because here's my concern, uh, David, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. My concern is that when we get all the details, there will be many devils in those details. And, you know, it sort of will be loopholes you can drive a Mack truck through where, you know, certain parts are toothless, et cetera. Uh, Or even if in this particular bill, even if this bill is not that bad, then as soon as, you know, it goes to the House and Gottheimer and his gaggle of idiots gets uh, their hands on it, that they will then (laughs) make it so that there are many problems with it. What are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, we know a lot of the details. We actually have the bill text. Um, uh, the, the, the place where it would might be subject to change, there are kind of two places, right? Uh, one would be if the parliamentarian, the, the dreaded parliamentarian, <laughs> decides that there are uh, you know, certain things that are not germane to the budget reconciliation process. Uh, the other place would be if uh, various House members or various senators box. So what we've seen so far in the first 24 hours since this is, has gone live, and I can talk about some of the details uh, after this, but um, you know, we've seen uh, Kirsten Cinema kind of give a no comment. Uh, we've seen Bob Menendez say, well, you know, we we really need that uh, to restore that state and local tax deduction mm. uh, at full levels, uh, which has been, you know, sort of looming around this debate. Uh, it's something you've seen more out of the House. But Menendez has kind of been a quiet uh, uh, opposing force on a lot of these things, particularly the drug pricing piece. Um, and so not surprising necessarily to see that, although I'm not sure that that he's going to follow through on uh, making that a condition of his vote. And then, you know, and then you have the House members uh, like Gottheimer and like uh, uh, that crew that that, you know, have been pretty noncommittal at this point. I mean, Gottheimer did not take the bait and say, I need salt uh, when he was asked about it yesterday. He said something more like, you know, I have to see wh- how this benefits my constituents. And uh, the fact that nobody under $400,000, uh, make earning under $400,000 is going to be touched by this, uh, you know, maybe that gets him in the place where he, he relents on his salt thing. Uh, you know, I mean, the House is going to be a thin margin. The, the, by the time they get a vote on it, because there's a special election in Minnesota that's going to go to a Republican, it's a Republican seat, there's only going to be a three-vote margin in the House. Uh, which which is going to be difficult to navigate for Nancy Pelosi. She needs pretty much everybody on board, just like uh, in the Senate. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, there are still some heart attacks that are going to take uh, before before we get uh, a final analysis. As far as what we have right now, I mean, I think I think the thing that is the most not as advertised is the carried interest provision. I mean, mm. that is not closing that loophole. That is saying that, I mean, basically the way carried interest works is that they get uh, uh, hedge fund managers, private equity guys get to take um, earnings, uh, you know, which is the earnings that they make off, off, uh, you know, making these investments as long-term capital gains. And right now what the law says is that you have to hold that asset for three years to make it a long-term capital gain. And all this change does is change that to five years. Mm. 
And a lot of private equity investments are held for more than five years. A lot of venture capital investments are held for more than five years. And so uh, uh, this, this isn't going to be that big a change. And it doesn't kick in until the beginning of 2023. That gives six months for investment financiers to figure out even more ways to get around it. Uh, uh, it relies on some regulatory issues at, at Treasury. I, I'm not convinced that that's going to be much of a change at all. And it also seems like the other things are really big, like $300 billion, $200 billion. The, this, as scored, the carried interest tweak is $14 billion over 10 years. It feels like something that was put in so that the cinemas of the world can take it out and say they got something and mm. then pass the bill. Gotcha. Because mm. it, it's not... It, the bill is not contingent on having that. Yeah. Even I was, though Manchin has said he's for it for a long time. I was surprised that the dollar figure put with that was only $14 billion um, because, like yeah. you said, I mean, I, I didn't dig into, okay, well, what have other estimates said? But I thought, oh, okay, if you're closing this massive loophole, surely it would generate more than that. So that you're uh, filling uh, in the gaps estimates, for me there. Yeah, other estimates are more than double. If you actually closed it, it would be much more than double. Uh, that number. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it feels, although, I mean, interestingly, if you go back and it's funny because remember when Manchin and Schumer signed a secret agreement last year Yeah. Uh, uh, to, to like, this is going to be the deal. Uh, and then Schumer scribbled on it. I will try to get Manchin to change this stuff. But that was actually a year ago today. <laughs> Uh, hmm. That 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 deal was uh, put together. That's and in that deal, it said it said closed carried interest loophole. So clearly, this was something that Manchin was interested in for some time, and he defended it on the radio uh, uh, in the in the the hours after the uh, announcement was made. So uh, he wants it, but uh, you know he doesn't. He's not going to get the final word, I don't think. And uh, you could see it as as just like the 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 thing that can be extracted. Um. Talk to me about the IRS tax enforcement piece. Um, how are they going after increasing revenues through that? Because that was a fairly high number. What was that? They had that slated as like $124 billion that they were going to gain from increased IRS tax enforcement. Yeah. Uh, and actually, it, it's really a low number compared to what the administration thinks they're going to be able to get out of that. So basically what happens is they they're going to increase the budget of the IRS so that uh, they can do more enforcement. And that budget is going to be increased by a total of $80 billion over 10 years. Hmm. And what they think is they can yield back enough revenue that people should have been paying uh, to get back a net of $124 billion, right? That's what CBO said. When, uh, when the administration put out this beefed up IRS enforcement idea, uh, you know, with the original Build Back Better plan, they thought they could net more than $400 billion out of that. So it's the same money going in. It's just a question of what you think you can get out of it. And uh, I mean, certainly if you invest in the IRS so that they have actual capacity to, to, to do audits, which they don't do right now, right? I mean, we know that that practically nobody who makes a decent amount of money gets any kind of uh, uh, look at their their second look at their taxes. It's a, a criminally small number. Uh, if you change that, reverse that process, and actually say, you know, you you have to pay what you owe, 
just just the the threat of that is going to do something, right? I mean, it, it's going to encourage less tax cheating, and uh, and and in reality, I mean, I think they're they're going to be able to do more audits and and have uh, be less outgunned than they are right now by by the wealthy and 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 powerful and well connected in this country. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm hopeful on that part. The other really interesting thing that's in here is a $15 million pilot program to uh, study a direct free e-file option mm. for people. In other words, the, the, the IRS would do the, the, the free filing. Lobbyists will have something to say about that one. Instead of that. Lobbies, well, yeah, they're, yeah. They're, this, this is obviously instead of outsourcing that to TurboTax, right. uh, yeah. which has an allegedly free program that's <laughs> not free at all and, and that, that uh, you know, ends up hurting people. So uh, I, I think this is going to be a real preoccupation of certain parts of the Biden administration. I, I think they are interested in getting this done. If you think about uh, this is something that a lot of members, including Elizabeth Warren and others, have have put forward as a real priority. And, and now there's some money behind it to actually get it done. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Uh, I think I think some people are pretty excited about it. Yeah, I mean, that's not, it's a small dollar amount, but that actually for so many Americans could be a real game changer, Kyle. Yeah, so uh, let me ask you, so that provision about not touching people under $400,000 a year, that also applies to the IRS portion of the bill? So like the IRS will uh, I don't not know be... That it, I don't think it... No, no. It, okay. it, this is about new taxes. That doesn't apply to IRS enforcement. It That's what I'm apply. afraid of, though. <laughs> they, had to, they had to put it in the carried interest, which is bizarre. They had to say, like, you can't... Like, this carried interest thing doesn't touch anyone who makes less than $400,000 a year. Nobody who takes the carried interest loophole. Right, of course, <laughs> of course. Um, uh, so it's it is kind of uh, insane. But, you know, I mean, the, the real increase, uh, uh, the real tax increase that's in here is really only one, and that's the corporate minimum tax, right? Um, and this is also based on a, a kind of a, a Warren proposal uh, that was done not only during the campaign, but she, along with Ron Wyden and, and uh, Angus King, wrote this in the uh, original Build Back Better. Um, and it, it says that, you know, we're going to look at your financial statement. Your, your, what you give to investors to show what your profit is. Mm. And if your profit was over, if your profit is over a billion dollars, uh, we're going to make sure that at the minimum you pay 15% on that. Um, so the, the, the thing that's a little unclear to me is how, uh, deductions and, uh, credits and, uh, you know, things like that factor into that. Is that a real like book profit, and and you look at that, and it's fifteen percent off that, or are there some some additional credits that companies can take to you know reduce that level of profit, and then take the minimum off that? Uh, that's the real abiding question here. Um, you know, I mean, this is going to be a full uh, employment act for accountants and lawyers to to figure out uh, the the best ways to avoid it. Uh, however, it is scored at, at you know three hundred billion dollars over ten years uh, from large corporations. What about the uh, climate change provisions here? And I was talking to uh, we were talking 
before you came on about the fact that part of what Manchin is demanding is basically like, I'll do some of this climate stuff, but I also want some new uh, fossil fuel projects greenlit by the Biden administration. Um, can you break down both pieces of the that? Yeah. Um, so uh, the original Build Back Better proposal had $550 billion going to renewable and, and clean energy uh, investment, right? This bill has $369 billion, and it's not all going to clean and uh, renewable investment. There are pieces for biofuels. There are pieces for, uh, you know, enabling offshore uh, drilling and saying that offshore wind uh, cannot be done until offshore drilling leases are are not put forward in that area for at least a year. Um, There's uh, a piece on allowing uh, fossil fuel production as long as uh, there's some sort of carbon capture program. It's going to be a really major creation of a market, really, for for carbon capture and sequestration, which is sort of more theoretical at this point. Um, So I don't have the full breakdown uh, on like how much of this goes to dirtier sources of energy, how much of it goes to cleaner I mean, some of it is that, you know, clean energy is sort of redefined a little bit as, you know, anything that's cleaner than what we have right now. Right. Um, But uh, there's a lot to look at here and say that this is pretty promising Um, there. There's, uh, for example, um, you know, let me think about this. Um, uh, there's the EV credit, for example. So that says that people can get up to $7,500 for uh, as a rebate for an electric vehicle. That rebate would come at the point of sale. You don't have to fill out a form. Uh, it would also be a, a rebate of up to $4,500 for a used uh, electric or zero emission vehicle. There's $60 billion for environment, environmental justice programs like port pollution reduction and uh, neighborhood block grants for uh, uh, cleaner sources of energy. There's manufacturing tax credits for things like solar, which haven't really been there before. The tax credits have really been for installation. Um, there's 10 billion or so for energy efficient homes and, and buildings. There's a, a fee on the leakage of methane for the first time. Uh, there's billions of dollars in grants for utilities if they decarbonize their electricity mix. There's a credit that's uh, a direct pay credit uh, that goes to public power facilities. Um, uh, I'm kind of scratching the surface. There, there's a lot in there. And uh, the claim is that it, uh, if, if everything was implemented, it would reduce uh, uh, the um, emissions uh, that we are emitting now by 40% over the next 10 years, by 2030. And uh, I'd like to see independent modeling of this uh, to, to, to really fine grain that a little bit, because uh, that would get us about uh, 75, 80% of the way that Build Back Better did, even though the money is, is far less. So there's a bit of doing more with less here. One way that they make that up is they have a, a climate bank, uh, which is supposed to leverage private investment in the green transition. Uh, that could be, there's also an energy loan program at uh, the Department of Energy that could be up to $250 billion uh, of, of, of loans for new technologies. Um, so there's a lot of kind of leveraging private investment too, 
uh, in here. But, uh, you know, I mean, overall, I think people that I trust are, are, are feeling pretty positive about it. Um, obviously, the price that you had to pay to get Joe Manchin to sign off on this is you had to sort of keep around a lot of dirtier sources of energy uh, and build, uh, enable the building of some carbon infrastructure that could be longer lasting. Uh, the other thing that is actually not in this bill, but it's sort of part of a promise, is that there would be some unspecified permitting reform uh, that would be in a bill that is uh, that the, the leadership promised to pass uh, by the end of the fiscal year, so by the end of September. Uh, I think this is mainly designed to get the Mountain Valley gas, natural gas pipeline, which goes through West Virginia, uh, to be approved. Um I, I it's kind of interesting because what did we have before? We had this sort of two track strategy and, you know, there was the infrastructure bill and there was build back better. And uh, the theory was that if you severed those two that uh, and you passed one before the other, that uh, the, the right wing of the caucus wouldn't go forward with the second part that was build back better. Now you have a two track strategy of build back better and permitting. And Build Back, uh, not Build Back Better, it's called the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act is IRA. going to pass, the, the IRA <laughs> is going to pass well before uh, permitting does, right? So now progressives might be in the position of saying, all right, well, we passed the one, why do we have to pass the other? Yeah. Now, uh, it, could be, it could be that Republicans get on board and sort of make progressives irrelevant in that discussion. But uh, Republicans are pretty pissed off at the Democrats. They're like voting against really popular things like health care for dying veterans exposed to toxic burn pits. Uh, I don't know that they're going to cooperate, uh, even on something that's deregulatory that they might support. And so progressives might be in an interesting position on the second half of this uh, uh, to, to make sure that that permitting reform doesn't enable a lot of fossil fuel infrastructure that's going to be hard to get rid of later. So uh, one of the other things that I'm guessing they had to to give in to Joe Manchin on in order to get this to work is uh, the deficit reduction aspect of this bill. So uh, talk about that a little bit. My question is, do they look at that or is Manchin looking at that like, oh, this is going to uh, stop inflation? And then the next question is, will it actually impact inflation in any way that that is what he's looking at clearly um uh, he he's saying that that uh, you know it's it's sort of this this overspending overheated economy theory of the case uh the reason that we're having all this inflation is because we gave people too much money and 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 now we have to pull it back um i, I think that fails for a couple reasons uh number one is that the deficit reduction in this bill is something like $300 billion over 10 years. Uh, that's already offset by the CHIPS bill that we uh, are going to talk about later, which is unpaid for. Uh, and this burn pit bill that I mentioned briefly, the PACT Act, which is also unpaid for, and, and that one's about $280 billion over 10 years. So the idea that you're going to get long-term deficit reduction out of this bill is just not true. If anything, you're going to Get get deficit neutrality compared to some of the other bills that are uh, uh, going around. Uh, the second thing is that uh, uh, the idea that there was this overheated economy that created all of this inflation that we have is just not not 
factually accurate in my view. I mean, uh, we've had uh, supply chain disruptions that certainly caused a lot of the run-up in prices. The war in Ukraine uh, certainly caused uh, shortages in things like energy and food. Um, I, I don't see uh, uh, what's uh, going to be done 10 years from now as having a particular impact on uh, this, this current level of, of inflation. And I, I don't think that, that overspending was a particularly large part of the, the issue anyway. So um, yes, it's the price you have to pay to get Manchin on board. He has this very, very rigid view about uh, uh, federal spending and its impact on on inflation, uh, and uh, it's kind of uh, what you have to do. It is it is a loss because I mean, think about what you could do with that three hundred billion dollars. Yeah. But uh, uh, it's 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 where we're at. Well, and it is truly grotesque that Republicans, because they're pissed off about this mansion deal, are blocking something that would help veterans suffering from toxic burn pit. I mean, I just, I cannot wrap my head around that one whatsoever. It, it, it's absolutely insane. And uh, this is a bill that got 84 Senate votes wow. uh, three weeks ago. Uh, there was a tax measure in it that didn't originate in the House. So the House had to take it out. So all they had to do was bring this back to the Senate, uh, the same bill with, with a particular tax measure out of it, that that Republicans didn't support anyway, and they completely shifted because they were having a hissy fit about uh, uh, Joe Manchin uh, not not being on their side anymore. Uh, it is ridiculous. It's politically toxic, um, and uh, it's it's really the height of 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 uh, you know tantrum based politics. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and it looks really bad. For them. Well, I was going to say, let's talk about why they're having a tantrum, um, which is that uh, they just passed the the CHIPS Act through the Senate yesterday. And McConnell, and this is, and I I do want to get your take on that bill. You will have a piece um, calling into question. It doesn't have, you know, worker protections. It doesn't uh, guarantee sort of union work. So I want to talk about that. But the reason they're freaking out is because McConnell had said, hey, if you guys do another reconciliation deal, we're backing out of the chips deal, which is also silly and absurd. It's like either you like this bill or you don't. What does that have anything to do with this other thing over here? But uncharacteristically, Democrats were actually disciplined and savvy in their strategy. And literally hours after the chips bill gets through the Senate, that's when they're like, surprise, we have this Manchin-Schumer deal that no one expected was coming. It's stunning. And, uh, you know, as the way that I put it, uh, in my piece today, if if some sort of cosmic situation transpired where the brain of Mitch McConnell and the brain of Chuck Schumer switched, yep. that's exactly what I said. All the Machiavellian nature of of McConnell and Schumer, and that you had all the guilelessness of of Schumer and McConnell, that would be a more plausible explanation than, than what actually happened uh, on this. Uh, it's, 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 it's really quite something. I mean, we don't know exactly when, uh, Manchin and Schumer finally got agreement on this deal, but it seems very clear that they held off the announcement until after chips was done, uh, to remove that threat that, uh, that McConnell, uh, had put forward publicly. And, and maybe, I mean, McConnell is not, 
I mean, the thing about McConnell is he he tells you exactly what he's thinking. He tells you exactly what he's doing at all times. He's very honest. Uh, it it that's seen as as cunning in Washington, but he's very honest about what he's doing. And uh, the the fact that he made that threat might have been part of the process that that Manchin uh, said, well, you know, uh, you're you're blocking a, a good bill for for no apparent reason. I'm going to have to come back and come up with something I can deal with and and put up with. I mean, that might have been, you know, part of Manchin's thinking. Uh, uh, but it is it is, uh, you know, a rare moment of Democrats uh, really playing this game very well. Yeah, I, the point you made about McConnell, that's exactly what I said to Crystal, because we talked about this a little bit in the intro. I made the exact same point that it almost reminds me a little bit of like the Merrick Garland situation. where He was just like, I'm going to hold up. Uh, Merrick Garland for a year and pretend like it's this, you know, it's the right thing to do. That's <laughs> Schumer playing this game, becoming McConnell. I'm pleasantly surprised. But let's talk a little bit about uh, the specifics of the CHIPS Act, because so my uh, let me walk you through my thought process on this and then you could tell me where you are on it. You know, I was celebrating the fact that we're now having these conversations and getting the ball rolling on, you know, in Ohio and Michigan and elsewhere. It's like, let's have microchip factories. Let's bring back all these jobs. I, I think it's a it's a wonderful thing. Uh, but I stumbled across this earlier that uh, Bernie apparently came out against the bill and I was trying to figure out why. And my understanding is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the union portion that you brought up, that there is no uh, you know, they're no, they're not union jobs, that there's no like guarantee that the jobs won't be outsourced in a few years anyway. There's a few little pieces that Bernie thinks are, you know, basically loopholes that you can drive a Mack truck through. And effectively, he doesn't trust it in the same way that uh, what was the other factory that they promised and then they just never Fox delivered Con on? Fox Con Con factory? The, yeah, big yeah. boondoggle. So, uh, you know, on the one hand, it's like I, I want to support this because nobody supports American manufacturing more than me. Like I want to bring I want to revitalize our uh, manufacturing in this country. But then at the same time, I don't want to be a sucker when three or four years down the road, if they do this and it's nothing but a giant giveaway and then they outsource the jobs anyway. So walk me through what your thoughts are on that. And, and if you think it's good to vote for it or against it in the specifics of the bill. Well, look, I mean, uh, uh, the, the, the reality is that industrial policy costs money, right? And uh, either, the, either these semiconductor fab, fabrication plants are, are going to be built in the United States uh, or they're going to be built elsewhere. And uh, I think it's in the interest of the United States to have uh, those, those built here. And, and there is a jobs component. I mean, you know, there the... the these are advanced manufacturing facilities, and presumably they would they would uh, you know get a decent wage. Um, I think what Bernie was was uh, reacting to, as much as the prevailing wage measures, which were taken out by the way of this bill, it's kind of interesting because there are prevailing wage measures in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. <laughs> there, they they they. Uh, you know, have uh, measures for construction and repair and maintenance at uh, energy facilities that take the public money. But but uh, facilities uh, in the in the semiconductor uh, uh, bill that take public money don't have to abide by any kind of prevailing wages. Uh, they don't have to have neutrality in union elections. Um, and so uh, some of the worker protections were were kind of stripped away. And and then even more important. This was a vehicle to pass what is known as trade adjustment assistance, which is for displaced workers uh, whose jobs are outsourced. Uh, since JFK, we have given 
uh, them retraining, upskilling, uh, support through whether it's, uh, you know, uh, housing support or, or education support, uh, so that they can find a new, uh, job at, at, at a similar wage. And, uh, that program is going to expire. Uh, that's going to expire at the end of the year. This is a 60 year old program that helps about a hundred thousand workers per year. Uh, we're already pretty woeful in terms of worker retraining, uh, in this country. And this is just going to make it much, much worse. Uh, there was a trade chapter in uh, the, the the CHIPS bill uh, that was very different between the House and Senate. And, and the decision that the uh, leadership made was just to get rid of it. And when they got rid of it, they got rid of the trade adjustment assistance. So mm. that's that's a real uh, that's a real bad uh, uh, outcome here. Um, I mean, ultimately, I think that you know, you're, it's important to get started on industrial policy. There's some interesting uh, science-based measures to increase, uh, you know, innovation, uh, technology programs, STEM, uh, education, things like that. Um, so I, I don't think it's a terrible bill. What Bernie was more uh, uh, angry about, though, was uh, the fact that, uh, in his view, companies could take this money and then still uh, throw cash at their investors through buybacks, uh, for example, stock buybacks or dividends. And what's interesting is his amendment to that only dealt with buybacks. It didn't deal with dividends, which is just another way of giving cash to investors. Uh, there's not a huge difference between buybacks and dividends in terms of the outcome, uh, but his amendment only dealt with buybacks. I'm not sure exactly why uh, that would be. Um, but uh, there, there is uh, uh, some sort of guardrail against buybacks and dividends. However, because money is fungible, you can't say like, you can't use this money that we give you to, to deliver buybacks to your shareholders. They, they can always just say, well, I used other money. This I is didn't different use money. This money. Mm -hmm. I, I, I used different money. Um, so it's, it's, it's a hard provision to, to actually enforce. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 the executive branch has every ability to just end buybacks entirely by themselves. If you want to talk about, uh, you know, uh, executive action, they can just remove the safe Harbor that was put in, in 1982, uh, to, to that, that would have, uh, you know, essentially criminalized the conduct of buying back your own stock. So, uh, you know, there are certainly ways if you if you really don't want uh, this kind of cash to be disgorged into uh, investors hands, uh, there's certainly ways to deal with it uh, that go beyond uh, even Congress. Um, but uh, I do think the in industrial policy benefits of this bill are pretty good. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me, and this is the way the PC wall published, uh, I think, by Lee Harris, lays it down, is that there was an opportunity to make this both a bill that's going to support uh, chip manufacturing in the U.S. and a bill that's really good for workers. And instead, they just did right. the part that the corporations really like, no surprise. But, you know, sometimes the interests of the corporations and the interests of the American public do align. Uh, talk about this in the context of the relationship with China and critically Taiwan, because uh, the overwhelming bulk of the advanced chip manufacturing manufacturing happens in Taiwan. We're hearing now the administration is more and more concerned about uh, Chinese aggression towards Taiwan. So um, that's why this piece ended up being so critical to do right now. Right. I mean, there was that and also the fact that a lot of semiconductors are in shortage, right? Um, that over the last year, 
there were uh, problems in getting these chips, which are in everything, not just electronics, but automobiles and uh, you know, smartphones, uh, smart uh, utilities and uh, appliances and things. Um, there, that was the real problem here is that we had offshore capacity of, of semiconductors all over the world. And it was concentrated in such a way that when COVID hit, uh, it became a problem to source them. And uh, so the idea is that reshoring these facilities, adding diversity to the supply mix uh, would would put us in a better position. And, of course, uh, with Taiwan under threat uh, from China, uh, you know, there were sort of national security implications here um, that uh, you don't want the Chinese kind of controlling whether or not you can make not just cars, but you know, weaponry and, and, and electronics that are used uh, and, and things like that. Um, uh, so, I mean, that, that certainly was a major factor. But as far as uh, you know, doing the subsidies without getting guarantees for workers, that's not limited to the CHIPS bill. Um, uh, we've done a number of uh, supports, for example, for the uh, automotive industry, for, for building out electric vehicles, batteries, drivetrains, everything like that. And uh, we don't have those kinds of protections in there either. Um, uh, the, all the money that went out in the infrastructure bill for uh, uh, you know, electric battery charging stations, uh, uh, money that has gone out in loan guarantees, to the electric vehicle industry, uh, a lot of the, the 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 worker claims is like they're very vague. They say these jobs should be good paying jobs, and they don't define what good paying means. Uh, and and so you know this is a maturing industry, and the automotive uh, sector has kind of said, okay, well, uh, uh, you know, building cars is one thing. We you know some of us have have worker agreements, union uh, agreements on those. But building electric cars, that's a whole different uh, vehicle set that, that, that isn't bound by these agreements. Uh, and, you know, Tesla certainly took the lead as a major non-union uh, made in the USA uh, manufacturer. We've seen a lot of uh, auto companies from overseas come into the U.S. in southern states, right to work states, and not put unions in. And so you have this, this whole sector that is moving towards non-union ownership, and even the legacy contracts from places like Ford and and, and GM and and Chrysler, if they move to electric vehicles and say, "Well, electric vehicles aren't, aren't covered by the current contracts," now you have an entire sector that used to be entirely union that is entirely non-union, mm. and the government had an opportunity to do something about that because they were propping up this sector. With rebates, with with investment uh, uh, grants, and with loans, and they could have built in to those agreements uh, uh, mandates for whether it's union neutrality or or certain standards uh, for on the job. Uh, they could have done a lot more than what they've done. Mm, that's a great point. Yeah. Um, so I want to get to your your new project in a second, but just to to wrap up these previous two conversations here. And by the way, uh, you guys were making points there that I had a light bulb moment about, you know, we've debated, oh, is the era of neoliberalism over? Or are we like right smack dab in the middle of it? And my position has always been like, I think we're still kind of in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you reframe the conversation about manufacturing around national security, 
That's like the only thing I think that could actually make it so that we prioritize domestic manufacturing and actually invest a lot of money in that. So maybe I'm wrong and maybe we are like sort of slowly transitioning out of that era. Um, having said that, what do you think, David, um, the Chick Chips Act is very likely to become law, right? I mean, we know it passed the Senate. It's almost certainly going to pass the House, correct? It's going to be on the House floor. Uh, uh, you know, we're taping this on Thursday. It's going to be on the House floor on Thursday. And uh, this is another case of House Republicans uh, having a hissy fit. They're saying, well, we were for this, but now that you're passing reconciliation, we're mad and we're not we're not going to pass this bill. I, I, I don't think there are that many. I don't think there are any really Democrats right. against this. So, so I don't it's passed. Think, It'll I, pass. I don't think it's going to be a factor. It's very likely to pass. OK, so but now uh, just to go back to the previous conversation, what do you think the chances are of that reconciliation deal becoming law? I think they're pretty good. I mean, you know, been doing this long enough that you sort of get a sense of when the Democrats say we're all done and it's it's time to move uh, and getting Manchin's support uh, for this bill uh, is very suggestive of that. There are some hurdles, uh, you know, I mean, whether it's uh, cinema or, or I don't think there are going to be any hurdles on the progressive side, um, but there are some hurdles. Uh, I, I personally think that uh, the 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 one senator who should put herself in a very advantageous position on this actually is Amy Klobuchar, who has been trying to get a vote from Chuck Schumer on two tech antitrust bills that uh, were uh, promised a vote that she says she has 60 votes for in the Senate. And now she is, like every other senator, the one vote that is uh, determinative on reconciliation. And she should say to Chuck Schumer, all right, yeah, I'm going to give you my vote on the Inflation uh, Reduction Act, but you're going to give me a guaranteed vote on these antitrust bills. And, uh, you know, there, there's, uh, you know, this is, this is a, an opportunity. It's also sort of a problem if you want these bills to pass that every senator has the ability to do something like that, to say yeah. something like that. And some of them will, uh, uh, I, I assume. Uh, and we'll see what comes out of that and whether it it, it breaks up the deal. But the, I think everybody knows that this deal is pretty fragile, that anything with Joe Manchin is pretty fragile. And they're not going to want to do a lot to disrupt that. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's my intuition as well. Uh, I do want to talk about the uh, new magazine issue that you have out, which seeks to lay out a sort of you call it looking over the horizon, a series about ideas that can sprout into progress in the coming decades. And you explicitly say that you didn't want to dive into things that already had like a real sort of established foothold in the progressive movement, things like the Green New Deal, things like Medicare for All. You wanted to put some newer, um, more far-flung ideas on the table. So just talk a little bit about the genesis of the project, and then we can get into some of the details. Well, you know, until about 24 hours ago, I think the, that that progressives and Democrats were uh, kind of a little despairing of, of the trajectory of, of, of policy and politics right now. And uh, I, I thought that, you know, this was kind of an opportune moment to look ahead and uh, think about uh, uh, setting goals. I mean, what did we just see happen in the last month with the Dobbs ruling? We saw the culmination of a 50-year project on the right to uh, overturn Roe v. Wade, and it featured uh, a lot of losses by that that coalition, 
uh, and a lot of incremental steps by that coalition in various states uh, to, to grind down abortion access and uh, eventually a victory. And uh, none of those people who participate in that are to be admired, but they, they perhaps are to be studied. And uh, what they did was they set a big goal. They put it on the horizon. And uh, they worked towards that goal, even when it was difficult and, and seemingly not possible. And uh, I think that that is something that movements need. They need big goals that sit out there that uh, they can they can work towards. And so we aspired to do that with uh, some ideas that some of which have footholds in the United States, some of which have footholds in other countries. And uh, all of which I think uh, are are critical. They're not the only things that you need for uh, uh, you know a, a better society, but uh, they're critical elements of it. And I uh, so we we thought it was a good moment to 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 take a look at them. So there's uh you know so many of these ideas are ideas that I love. I want to flesh them out a little bit uh, for the audience here. So. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about Public Pharma, because I recently, Gavin Newsom did one of the few things that I've ever given him credit for, which is he announced that California is going to make their own insulin, which I thought was a fantastic idea. This idea of having uh, Public Pharma, explain how that would work and what that is. Yeah, so we're talking about the public manufacturing of prescription drugs. And what California did was based on a, a law that they passed uh, two years ago. Uh, the, the, the insulin uh, uh, effort is the first iteration of that. Um, but, uh, you know, in the past, uh, several countries and even in the United States have, have done uh, essentially nationalized the generic drug sector um, and uh, created uh, a, a decommodification of uh, a hugely expensive space. I mean, think about the prescription drug feature that is in this Inflation Reduction Act. It only affects seniors. It doesn't kick in, the Medicare price negotiation doesn't kick in for four years, not until 2026. Uh, it's only 10 drugs per year, uh, rising to 20 by 2029. And yet it still saves $300 billion over a 10 year period. Wow. That's how much money there is in prescription drugs. This is, a, 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 you know, I mean, uh, to talk like a, a Silicon Valley venture capitalist, this is an area ripe for disruption. Right? <laughs> and uh, the, 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 the thing that can be done at the government level is to say, you know, when something is off patent, rather than allowing uh, the, the drug industry to play games and, 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 you know, do things like pay for delay, where they literally bribe generic drug companies to stay out of the market. Ugh. The, the government, the gov and that's a real thing. And that happens all the time. Jesus. The government has a role to play of uh, uh, to say, OK, you know, these things aren't that expensive to produce. We're going to make a minimal investment and we're going to produce them and we're going to sell them at an affordable rate and, and increase access to all of our citizens to life saving prescription medications. Seems to me like this is an idea that would have massive public oh, support. Oh my god! And the only thing that really stands in its way is 
how many lawmakers? The pharma, yeah, the pharma. <laughs> a lot lobbyists. of money from the pharmaceutical <laughs> yeah. industry. So, um, but I mean, I, once you get one state that starts doing this, that's things right. can start rolling that downhill. Is, I mean, especially you know, a large state like Washington California. State. That's why I was celebrating Washington that. Washington and Oregon are going to say, "Why can't I have that?" Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, Nevada is going to say, "Why can't I have that?" And it just keeps going on from there. I am afraid, though, that what happened with single payer in Vermont might happen with this in California now. But I don't know. It, 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 you said it's already it's based on a law that already passed two years ago. So if if he's serious about it, the he gets it done. Passed and the in, and the investment is passed. And, and you know, it's the wonderful. investment for Medicare for all, which is to to to, you know, get insurance coverage for every one of your citizens is a much larger investment. True. Than the investment in building an insulin manufacturing plant that can produce a bunch of insulin. And of course, that's seed money. I mean, they're going to sell it at cost. So, uh, you know. And at, at cost is very minimal. Like, yes, it's it's a it is amazing when you think about how cheap it is to produce prescription drugs. The markup of that industry and, and most of the money in that industry goes to marketing. It doesn't go to producing the drugs. That's a minimal part of what the pharmaceutical industry does. Uh, so if you're selling something at cost, you're talking about pennies. You really are like it's not expensive to produce prescription drugs. Yeah. The pharmaceutical industry is such a scam. It really because is. It's it not really only is. that so much of they'll say, oh, we're doing all this life-saving research. All of the new molecules are being funded by public research. Tax funded. That's right. Even the research right. and development that they're doing is by and large over like, how do we do a slightly different formulation of Viagra? Or like, yeah. I mean, it really is <laughs> let's like, find let's, a new way to get let's put hard. it into one pill instead of two pills. It, it is, it's right. that sort to of- To extend the patent life. To extend the patent life. Ex I mean, they, exactly they put 30 right. patents on one drug so that they can say, oh, well, this one, the 20-year clock hasn't run out yet. And then we'll then we'll tweak it a little bit more and start a new clock. I mean, that the whole idea here is to keep Evergreen, the monopoly, over the, that particular market uh, uh, and that particular drug. And, and the government doesn't have to stand for that. They give out the monopoly. They give out the patent. That's right. Uh, they, 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 they have a role to play in, in making sure that uh, uh, people can get the, the drugs they need. So your piece in here, um, you your idea is cut off private equity's money spigot. You say a variety of legislative and regulatory actions would make it hard for private equity to stay in business, and that should be the goal. First of all, tell people why private equity is so evil and bad. And second of all, <laughs> tell us how we could basically bring it to its knees. Well, private equity is just among the most malevolent sources in American economic life and global economic life, really. Um, these are uh, investment companies that uh, use borrowed money to buy up uh, uh, various firms that uh, that they then throw all of the debt that they 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 use to buy the company onto that company, uh, so that they now have, in addition to running their business, they have this massive amount of debt they have to service. This ultimately leads to. Uh, lower, uh, lowering labor costs, uh, lowering safety costs, lowering, you know, anything that they can so they can go on as a viable business. It often leads to bankruptcy. And basically what happens in the midst of that process is private equity sucks the value out of these businesses as much as they can and leaves them in a husk by the side of the road. And we've seen this over and over and over again. And, and they are ubiquitous in, in, in at least American life. Uh, in restaurants, in retail, in healthcare, in housing, uh, just all over the place. Yep. And uh, 
there's no need for us. This is not something that 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 is necessary to to the survival of the republic. Uh, we we don't need to embolden financiers to just grab and smash every company that they can find. And uh, there are I have a bunch of ways in which uh, the you know what you want to do is cut the money off. From, uh, we're talking about hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars that they have to play with to buy companies. And you can do antitrust enforcement. You can say that all the debt that they put on these companies, the private equity firm is jointly liable for. You can say that if uh, a private equity transaction leads to bankruptcy, that all workers are demand a long-term and reasonable severance. Uh, there are a lot of ways to, to stop the pillaging here. But the biggest way is this. The only way private equity exists and thrives and survives is through leverage, is through the fact that they don't use their own money to buy these companies. They borrow the money. And uh, the 1940 Investment Company Act says that uh, uh, you can't use leverage if you're an investment firm. And there are exceptions to that rule. Uh, the one in 1940 said, if you're a small firm with under 100 investors, and then that was blown up by Bill Clinton in 1996 with a thing called the National Securities Markets Improvement Act, which said, OK, if you're an institutional investor like a hedge fund or not a hedge fund, like an endowment or a public pension fund uh, or a rich person, you can invest in private equity and they'd still be exempt from these these laws that uh, restrict the use of leverage. Take away those exemptions and you take away the ability for these kinds of investment firms to use leverage. That is the one weird trick that would end private equity today. Well, that sounds glorious. <laughs> I like the way that sounds. <laughs> so let me ask you uh, about one more provision in your piece. And then I'll, I also just want to uh, wrap it up by talking to you a little bit about uh, something I've used a number of times on my show, which is your Biden's executive order tracker thing. So I have a question mm -hmm. about that. But um, four day work week, this is one that has been very appealing to me for a long time. And there's been a number of studies that have come out because there's been pilot programs in a number of different places. And uh, it, the evidence is pretty clear that either the productivity stays about the same if you do a four day work week or in some instances it even goes up. So talk a little bit about, uh, you know, why you added that and the appealing aspect of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this has been a core uh, 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 ask of worker-led movements for, you know, some time, right? I mean, it, it's been that that we, wanna, we want to work less. The, the union movement gave us the eight-hour work week or eight-hour work day and the 40-hour work week and overtime pay. Uh, we, we, we can move towards this same goal by shrinking that even more. Uh, what we've seen in the last 40 years is that workers have become more productive. Companies have become more productive, but workers have not shared in the benefits of that productivity. You see this split in 1979 between wages and productivity and, uh, productivity keeps going up and wages essentially stagnate. And one way to rebalance that is by saying that uh, we're going to just work four days and get the same five days pay. And uh, uh, and as you say, if it does nothing to productivity, uh, this is a benefit not only to workers, obviously, 
it's a benefit to the environment. If you don't have to travel to work uh, one day a week, 20% of the time of your commute, uh, it's a, it could be a benefit to companies if they uh, uh, have a smaller footprint uh, for their real estate or, uh, you know, whatever they have to do. Uh, uh, they, they don't have to be open as much and therefore not uh, using, uh, you know, even the, using the electricity in the building. Um, it, it's, it's a benefit on a number of different levels. And uh, uh, essentially, uh, the, 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 the various ways to save labor uh, through technological advancements, through speed ups and productivity, uh, they should inexorably move toward uh, lower hours for people on the job. Uh, the, the, the benefits of productivity should not be hoarded by uh, the, the, the executive class. And that's, that's the idea behind this. So Sarah Jaffe wrote a really great piece. And yes, there are pilot programs in, in dozens of companies using thousands of workers. Uh, and some of them are going on right now. So um, your brilliant Biden executive order tracker I'm going to list some things here that, you know, that I learned from you, many of these things that Biden has the ability to do on his own, but he's just like choosing not to do it. Um, I'm not trying to overload you here, so stop me if I'm getting ahead or anything, but tell me the mechanism by which he can do these various things. So one of them is, let's, I'll, I'll, we'll go in order, start, uh, lower prescription drug prices. How does he have the authority to do that? So there are a couple different ways. Um, uh, there, there's uh, something called Section 40, 1498 of the U.S. Code, and there's another thing uh, uh, under what is called the Buy-Dole Act, and it says that uh, any uh, drug that was given a patent that used public money for research and development, which, as Crystal said, is all of them, uh, you, the government has the right to march in uh, extinguish that patent and deliver that patent to uh, a, a generic manufacturer who would deliver it under under more reasonable terms and reasonable terms can be affordability. Um, uh, so uh, that that is something that has been done and threatened in the past. Um, uh, the the most uh, the most primary case of that is in the case of Cipro which was a drug to uh, uh, fight anthrax in uh, 2001 when there was the anthrax scare of all these, uh, uh, this powder being sent through the mail. Um, uh, Bayer was charging an exorbitant rate for Cipro and George W. Bush's Health and Human Services Secretary, Tommy Thompson, said to, the, uh, to, to Bayer, we're going to take your patent if you keep selling this at a high price. And then Bayer said, oh, how about a dollar a pill? Um, and uh, so this has happened before. And 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 this threat is credible. Uh, and the drug companies know it. And uh, it just takes um, a, a, an aggressive executive uh, branch to, to pull it off. So we already know Biden has the ability to, if he wants to, eliminate uh, student loan debt. I think it's the 1965 Higher Education Act that gives him that authority. Yeah. Um, legalizing marijuana by just changing the schedule it is. He could do that on his own. Um, yeah. The one that I was most shocked by, and I think it was your article um, that explained this to me the first time, that he can expand health care to all Americans if he wants. Now, the mechanism of that, is that from that Obamacare provision about Libby, Montana, where they got single payer, or I think, correct me if I'm wrong, or was it something in the Social Security Act that allowed him to do it? 
Well, it, those things are one and the same. Oh, okay. That's um, my confusion. There I, you go. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, I don't, I, I, I think we've, we've gotten past this point, although there still is a public emergency for, uh, the pandemic out there. Right. Um, there is, uh, through a, through a variety of different uh, uh, things, environmental hazards, uh, uh, toxicity uh, can be ameliorated by giving uh, medical care, uh, uh, Medicare to uh, various uh, affected residents. Uh, in Libby, Montana is a place where they had a, a mine uh, that uh, was delivering, uh, you know, asbestos into the atmosphere. And uh, there were a lot of high rates, elevated rates of cancer in that in that city. And uh, in the Affordable Care Act, uh, Section 1881 of the Social Security Act was triggered to say, yes, the residents of Libby, Montana will have Medicare. Um, and so the idea was, well, we're in a pandemic right now, and that is a, a, a toxic uh, situation. So could you temporarily uh, use that? And, uh, uh, and, and, and triggered the Social Security Act. Uh, that was more of a thought experiment, I think. I mean, I, I know that gets thrown out there by some people occasionally. It was more Me. to say <laughs> that uh, it, it, it's, it's time to be creative about the, the, the authorities you have as an executive. Uh, because, I mean, uh, left to, uh, if, you, if you put that aside and say, I'm only going to deal with what uh, a legislature gives me, we've been talking just for the last uh, uh, several minutes about uh, what happens in that case. You get these these incremental, very cramped, uh, good news, bad news kind of bills. And uh, so, you know, the, the, the executive branch needs to really think about the power that it has to execute already passed laws. None of this stuff is they're making up out of whole cloth. This is this is literally the definition of uh, what an executive's function is, is to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. And they need to be aggressive about that uh, in order to have a successful presidency. And so Biden has done some things, uh, you know, raising uh, the minimum wage to $15 an hour for federal contractors, for yep. example, using federal procurement authority. Um, uh, there's going to be a change this fall to overtime laws that expand overtime to more workers. Um, uh, and, and there, there are several other things you can, you can read, uh, the, uh, tracker, which we're tracking about 110 different actions. It's at prospect.org slash EAT executive action tracker. Um, uh, I think it's close to a third that he's taken at least partial action on. So that's not terrible. But some of the big ones uh, are left unfulfilled, and there's sort of this big question around student debt and what's going to happen. And there's an August 31st deadline uh, for the current payment pause, which has been in place for about two years. Um, uh, so I think we're going to see uh, some sort of answer around that. Um, but you know, uh, it, it's it's important to push uh, the 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 chief executive. To, to realize and use his own power yeah. uh, because uh, we, we don't get that power uh, all the time. What, what you lay out is if you're actually a Democratic administration interested in governing, 
I mean, that's right. basically, yeah. you know, a lot of, in my opinion, the thrust of your coverage is like, okay, if you're actually interested in governing and shaping the direction of the country, here are things you can do right now. And here are ideas for the future of things we could move towards. And that work is so incredibly critical because I don't think Republicans share the same reticence about using the power of the executive in order to fulfill their vision of the future of the nation. And we already see this reporting from Jonathan Swan over at Axios about how they want to use the Schedule F executive order to have this massive purge of the federal bureaucracy. I mean, they have an agenda of how they would use power if they were there. So a, a Democratic administration needs to be on Armed with the same understanding of just what they could do should they choose to use that power. Yeah, and everybody definitely. I'll, give you, I'll give you two things. I'll give you two things side by side. So um, uh, during the Trump administration, he diverted money from military construction funds to be put to use uh, because he declared a national emergency to build the border wall. And the Supreme Court actually blessed that and said, yeah, you can go ahead and do that. Uh, the Biden administration has every opportunity to call uh, climate change a national emergency and divert military funds toward the purpose of uh, whether it's using uh, uh, microgrid networks in disaster areas under FEMA uh, or using money to fulfill the Defense Production Act and 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 build out uh, mineral deposit uh, 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 mining or uh, heat building, uh, creating uh, heat pumps, and he chose not to. And so, I mean, like right there, you see the difference uh, where uh, there's there's a Republican Party that was willing to push the envelope to meet its goals and uh, a Democratic Party that had stated goals that uh, they wanted to do uh, but wasn't willing to quite pull the trigger on the climate emergency. So everybody definitely go check out the American Prospects Executive Order Tracker. I've been using it for a, a lot of time on my show. And sometimes people will be like, like, where are you getting all this information from? This is really useful because a lot of people want to learn about policy because obviously mainstream media, there's, you know, there's it's a desert when it comes to that stuff. Yeah. So you have to go check that out. Uh, David Dayan, tell everybody... Uh, where they can find you, where they can read your stuff and your Twitter and all that stuff, because you're one of my top policy go-tos, and I think everybody should should read your stuff. You got it. So uh, we're at prospect.org. Um, uh, if you want to read, by the way, everything in our long-term decade uh, from now progressive big ideas series, it's at prospect.org slash 2032. Uh, the, the series is kind of called Prospects 2032, looking at the, the ideas for the next 10 years. Um, uh, obviously, we're writing about uh, the reconciliation deal, and, and uh, we continue to have our executive action tracker up, as you mentioned. Uh, I'm on Twitter at ddayen, D-D-A-Y-E-N. Fabulous. We are so lucky to have um, you today to break all of this down for for us because, I mean, I have been reading the coverage of the deal, but uh, to get into the details and where the pitfalls and where this is this likely to go is just absolutely invaluable. David, thank you so much for your time. All right. Thanks. All right. That was David Dayan. Um, man, I love that guy. I'd love to see him in an administration I was actually just, going to work. You know what I was thinking? <laughs> when he was talking towards the end there, I was thinking like, 
when I'm president, he's going to be my chief of staff Definitely. for my, for my yeah, top advisor. The, because there's so few people who actually dig into the mechanics yep. of the government, the power that you have. Mm-hmm. You need that person to be yep. able to say, here's your avenues. Here's what you can do. Like, okay, this is your goal. Here are some things you can do right now. You don't need the mansion or cinema or the parliamentarian. Here it is. Republicans have those people and they use them. We need somebody who's going to use David Dan and his ideas. That guy doesn't care about the horse race nonsense. Yeah. I've never heard him talk about the horse race stuff. Personalities, all that stuff. No. He's just like, let's let's get down to the meat and potatoes here. You know, let's get down to the brass tacks. Has always been uh, great on covering Wall Street finance. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a particular particular specialty for him. So, no, I mean, I lean heavily on his analysis. I really trust him. I think he's very honest, um, you know, very direct, not try to put spin on the ball whatsoever. Yeah, we, I mean, we have some go-tos that we always, you know, when you need some substantive stuff, you yeah. go to David Sirota, you go to David Dayan. Apparently, David's are a big name for <laughs> things that are <laughs> substantive. Uh, Jordan Sheridan does great work on the ground. But, you know, the thing about governing, I mean, first of all, a lo- Democrats are just sort of like allergic to governing. But even within this administration, you see the difference between who's interested in governing and who's not. So you've got right. Buttigieg over mm-hmm. at Department of Transportation. This is something that Matt Stoller always talks about. He's like, like I like planes. Right. I mean, literally, right? <laughs> yeah. He's like, we what he's like, Tass and I met in an airport yeah. or something, like whatever. Anyway, <laughs> um, he's interested in getting taking this patronage position that he received mm-hmm. with no qualifications whatsoever mm-hmm. and using it to further his own political ambition. So he's happy to go to all the ribbon cuttings with the infrastructure money, but to actually hold this powerful industry to account, the airlines that are screwing everybody over, no, not interested yeah. whatsoever. Whatsoever. Then you have um, you have the woman who's the general counsel at the National Labor Relations Board who understands what she can do in her role and is pushing the envelope to actually try to rebalance scales in every way she can in favor of workers. You have the um, antitrust folks, people like Lena Khan at FTC, who just they just um, are suing Facebook over this new merger in the metaverse space, mm-hmm. which is actually a really big deal in terms of anti-monopoly and antitrust. So you can even see within this administration how much it matters matters to have people who want to govern and understand the tools that are available right now to them so that they can use their power. And again, I think in terms of the sort of like infrastructure of generating these ideas and understanding the nuance, David Dan and um, American Prospect are invaluable. Agreed. Uh, final thing. CHIPS Act, we agree, passing. You think it's going to pass? Yes. Okay. The Republicans are whipping against it. Um, they don't have they don't have the numbers. I think I think a hundred percent of the Democratic caucus is on board, right. and I also think that they won't be able to successfully whip a hundred percent against it. So yeah. Um, reconciliation bill does that become law? Fifty fifty. Are you leaning left or are you I'm leaning? I'm leaning a little more in favor of it. Will. Of it will? Yeah. Hmm. I choose to be optimistic. I'm agnostic, but I'll. I'll take the opposite. You'll and take the I lean opposite. slightly in favor. 55%. It's usually, that's usually the smarter way to bet. Well, uh, it's, again, the thing I'm worried <laughs> about is either that, so you get nothing, or they make it so incredibly shitty and then it passes. Like, way worse than what it is on paper now. I do think Dan's analysis of why now is interesting and relevant for whether or not we'll pass because Manchin did was not ready to be the villain of everybody. And so he was fine. In fact, it was good it was good for him when activists was our case that when act, works. Right. When activists were pissed off at him, he didn't care. That was good for him. When it's everybody. But when it was everybody in the elite media and he's becoming this just like national villain, he was not ready for that. And 
anyone who would blow up this deal at this point would have to be prepared to be the villain, not just to the activist class, but to the New York Times editorial look, board and the Washington Post and whatever. And I don't know that Gottheimer has that kind of stones. But this makes me angry because it's case in point that what we were saying all along was correct. That if you did that you could, that they are approach, subject to pressure. You yeah. could have gotten Build Back Better through, or at the very least, you could have gotten a package that was instead of three point five trillion, maybe two trillion or two point five trillion. Yeah. If you did it the right way, if you did a carrot or stick approach, if you were willing to flex behind the scenes and tell Joe Manchin, look, I'll make you a hero. You will be there. Will be statues to you in West Virginia. What do you want? You want a position in my administration? Somebody in your family want a position in my administration? I'll do whatever but you got to do a favor for me. And by the way, if you don't, I'm not saying anything, but Merrick Garland's over here and he's investigating your entire family. And goddamn, I don't know, this guy's crazy. He might go a little too far. You might be behind bars. Well, and the media's take originally when he was tanking um, Build Back Better was like, oh, isn't he savvy? And he's just representing West Virginia and blah, blah, blah. So he didn't feel any pressure when media was basically like taking his side. Until he blew up everything. Now, that they there was some turning among elite media on him. That was what he, I mean, I, I kind of buy David's analysis here that that's why he was not really prepared to be the villain even among elite media types because this is a this is a country club kind of a dude and he yeah. wants to be, you know, on friendly relations and all the cable news green rooms and have his tic ticket to the cocktail party. But parties. my point is it's functionally the same thing as if you did the maximum pressure campaign early on. Mm -hmm. That's because, remember when Bernie wrote that op-ed in West Virginia, Manchin lost his shit behind the scenes. He was furious. Why? Not because it's ineffective, because it's effective. Right. So if you kept that up and you shift the narrative and you made it so he was the bad guy from day one and you gave him best friend, worst enemy, your choice, he's going to pick best friend. Yeah, and that really comes, that a lot of that comes down to Biden, who was wholly unwilling to oh, push him, useless. even in in. A millimeter. Absolutely useless. Yeah. Anyway, all right. We love you guys. We'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a great one.